Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. This morning we're going to have a, uh, a children's sermon, so uh, children, I invite you to uh, come on forward, and I've got uh, some props and a, uh, a Christmas gift for some of you. <laughs> if the children don't come up, I'll have to start calling uh, some of my youth kids, some of the salt teens or some of the under 30s. <laughs> Hi, buddy. Do you want to sit down? We'll just take a seat right around here, Okay. Just take a seat around the Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, all right, welcome. What, uh, what holiday did we just celebrate this week? Christmas? Yeah, Christmas, right? Whose birthday do we celebrate at Christmas? Jesus' Jesus's birthday, right? Yeah, and uh, we give each other presents at Christmas, don't we? What did, uh, what did you guys get for Christmas? Does anybody have a favorite gift they want to share? Tell us about, not share, I guess. <laughs> you got a dolly? Yeah, you got a dolly for Christmas? What else? Did you just get lumps of coal in your stockings? <laughs> a dolly too? Did you get that little pig at Christmas? Yeah, he's pretty cute too. Well, I brought uh, one of my favorite Christmas gifts and I'm actually wearing them. Do you see these? These are socks that my kids made for me. William made one pair and Serena made another pair and I couldn't decide which I wanted to wear so I wore one of William's and one of Serena's. So I've got my favorite, uh, I hope you can see that in the back there, my favorite pair of socks on and uh, homemade and uh, I'm very proud of those socks. So, <laughs> But I do, have, uh, I do have another gift in the bag here and uh, I'll have one of you open this bag. Who would like to open this bag and see what this gift is? Me? How about we let one of these, one of the guests, would you like that? Yeah. You want to open it? No? Him? How about you? How about you? you you're volunteering him. <laughs> all right, William, go in there. See what's in that bag. Pull out some of those. Uh, you all can help. You all can help. Pull out some of those wrappings. What's in that bag? Yeah. What? Rocks? Can you get those rocks out? <laughs> Ugh, they might be, they may weigh more than you. <laughs> There's one. You want to hold a rock? I think you got the little rock. Two rocks. Three rocks. Look at that. Big, huge rocks. Now, what would you do if you got a rock for Christmas? Put it in your garden. Do you want to help hold this one? That's big and heavy. Have it for a decoration. Yeah. How would you describe this rock? Is this rock useful for anything? I can hold it. You can hold it? Useful for a decoration? What else would you use this rock for? Ugh. I know farmers in the Red River Valley grow them, but uh, <laughs> put it in your garden. Let me ask you a silly question. Is this rock alive? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what, would, what would happen if I put water on it to try to cause it to grow? It would, 
it would be, it would be wet, right? <laughs> if I uh, gave it a hamburger, would it eat a hamburger? No, this thing isn't alive. It doesn't grow, does it? But do you know what? Throughout the Bible, <laughs> Jesus is described as a living stone, a living rock. He's the rock that is alive. And uh, a rock, right, is, is solid. It's hard. You can't, uh, you, could, you could break it with a hammer, things like that, but a rock is hard. And uh, Serena, we've been reading a story uh, called the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And in that story, there's a character called Puddleglum who's described as a brick. Not because he is dull and insensitive and, and uh, heavy and hard and things like that, but he's called a brick because he's strong and he's reliable, he's trustworthy, And in the same way, Jesus is a brick. He is a rock. He is strong. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. And he is a living rock because unlike this rock, which isn't alive, Jesus is alive, right? He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But then God rose to him from the dead, and he is alive. So Jesus is our living rock. So in today's sermon, we're going to talk a lot about living stones And so now you kind of know what we're talking about, living stones. All right, you can return to your seats. I will let you decide if you want to keep those rocks or put them back in my bag. (laughs) Yep, all right, thank you. You can put them back in the bag, Serena. How about that? This one is heavy, too. I'll help you with this one. Thank you. Yep, you can go back to your seat now. All righty. Well, thank you for uh, humoring me this morning and uh, going along with the children's sermon about rocks. <laughs> I hope you did have a good Christmas. Looking around here, there's a lot of family, a lot of friends around, and it is so good to gather together, even in uh, coronavirus, even in a pandemic and things like that. I hope you were able to find joy in the Savior who was born for you. Last Sunday, Pastor Lloyd led us through a couple of verses in 1 Peter chapter 1. And in that passage, the Apostle Peter said that the Old Testament prophets who prophesied the coming of the Messiah and the angels of God, in fact, eagerly longed to see this Messiah clearly. And in the text that we're going to study in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, Peter asks a question of his readers. He says, Now that the Messiah, a living stone, has arrived, what do you do with him? He tells us that they can reject Jesus completely, stumbling over the salvation that he brings, or they can receive him and become like living stones in the temple of God, receiving all of the wonderful promises and blessings and benefits from the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. And why don't you stand with me this morning as we read these verses? I think they'll be on the screen here as well. Reading once again in Jesus' name. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for today and for the message of Christmas. Thank you that we can gather together in your house, Lord, with your people, and with living stones, one to another, and celebrate you and your birth and this whole season of Advent and Christmas. Lord, and we pray that you would be with us here today. Open us up to your word and what you would have for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this text, there are three rock-solid truths that we as believers can firmly rely on. And the first one is this, that Jesus Christ is the living stone. In verse 4, Peter says, You come to him, to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus Christ is the living stone. And again, Peter calling Jesus a stone is a good thing. It is a positive thing. It's a positive compliment. Oftentimes, we, in our minds, we associate calling somebody a, a rock with their intelligent level, intelligence level. Oh, you're about as dumb as a box of rocks, right? Uh, but, but think back to the children's sermon and uh, Puddle Glum the Marshwiggle in the Chronicles of Narnia it is often described by the children as a brick, not because he's dull or insensitive or stubborn, but because he, he, he's a brick because he is strong and reliable and trustworthy. And, and similarly here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus being a stone is a very positive trait. It's a very positive thing. Jesus Christ, the living stone, is strong and reliable and trustworthy. Think of it this way. As engineers build and design skyscrapers, they need to dig down deep into the earth to find the bedrock, the, the stone to which they need to anchor that building to. They need something strong and reliable and trustworthy, to hold, something that is firm and unmovable to hold that building as it reaches thousands of feet up into the air. You won't find anything that reliable in dirt or, or clay. You need bedrock. And in the same manner, Jesus is a strong, reliable, trustworthy foundation upon which to build your life. And unfortunately, people often try to build their lives on all sorts of soft soils of, of temporary things. Things like their, their job titles, the car that they drive, their status in the community, their, their popularity on TikTok. And then when the storms of life and the trials of life come and batter that weak foundation that they have built for themselves, their lives can come tumbling down in a hurry. When cancer attacks, when an unforeseen pandemic deems your job to be unessential, when your 15 minutes of fame wears out, when death unexpectedly takes one of your loved ones, when storms and trials like that come, when they hit, 
You need your life to be built on a firm foundation. And a life built upon the strong foundation of Jesus is enough to weather these storms. Not because you in and of yourself possess the strength to stand, but because you remain standing because of the firmness of that foundation. As the storms of life hit, Jesus, who is your sure and your true foundation, he gives you the strength to stand and to weather those storms. He will see you through. His presence will never leave you. Build your life on the foundation of Jesus. Trust in him. He will never let you down. But unfortunately, not everyone builds their lives upon the strong, reliable foundation of Jesus. Peter says in verse 4 that he, Jesus, is the living stone and he has been rejected by men. Specifically, I think Peter was talking about the Jewish religious leaders who, who constantly opposed Jesus, right? The Pharisees who had heard Jesus preach and teach, those who saw him do miracles, those who were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the Roman rule. They rejected him. They plotted against him and conspired against him. They had him arrested and put on trial. They had him crucified even though he had done no wrong, committed no sin. The Jewish religious leaders had rejected Jesus. But they're not the only ones who have rejected Jesus. Anytime someone chooses to build their lives upon any foundation other than Jesus, he is rejected. He is rejected when somebody hears the gospel message, the good news found in scripture and walks away from it unchanged. He's rejected when when new and progressive ideologies replace the truth of his word with whatever the zeitgeist of the day is. He is rejected when we trust in some other foundation other than the living stone. And even though Jesus was and is still rejected by men, he is God's perfect plan of redemption. In verse 4, Peter says that in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. And this is really the message of Christmas, isn't it? That God sent forth his son to suffer and to bleed and to die for humanity. Ultimately, Christmas, Jesus' birth, doesn't mean anything if it doesn't culminate in Good Friday and in Easter morning. If Jesus had not come to die for us, what good was his coming in all reality? We have and continue to have lots of good teachers who who demonstrate love for their enemies. We've had many prophets who have spoken God's words to us. Uh, But what what we needed most desperately is a Savior, somebody who would deliver us from our sins. And so Jesus Christ came to earth, entered into humanity as a baby on Christmas, grew up, shared our temptations, but yet he did all of that perfectly. And then he was crucified for you, bearing all of the weight of your sin on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died in your place and on your behalf, enduring the punishment that you deserved because of your sin. 
but death could not hold Jesus, could it? And in our sermon text, Peter describes Jesus as the living stone. Jesus is not some cold, dead, lifeless rock. He is alive, amen? He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and the devil. He ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand and from where he shall come one day to judge the living and the dead, taking us to be with him and finally once and for all defeating sin, death, and the devil. Amen. And to that we say, Maranatha, right? Come, Lord. But in the meantime, as we await Christ's return, Peter gives us another rock-solid truth that we can firmly rely on. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. In these verses, Peter says that we are like living stones who are being built up into God's house. He says, And you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves are like living stones, are are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the living stone. And Peter goes on to compare believers like you and like I to the stones in the wall of a building. Each believer is a living stone in the temple of God. Believer, you are the temple of God. And one brick, one stone, one rock by itself isn't very impressive. Uh, we use these as doorstops in our house and decorations. And like the kids said, you just put it in your garden. That's all it's good for, right? But, but when you join stones together, one with another, using mortar as glue, you create something, don't you, right? Houses, shops, churches, all are constructed brick by brick, stone by stone. And Peter says that we, as individual believers, are being built up, being joined one by one into a spiritual house, into God's temple. It was King David who wanted to construct a physical temple for the Lord. The Lord hadn't dwelt with Israel, or had dwelt with Israel in a tent, in a tabernacle, ever since their wanderings in the wilderness. Uh, nearly 400 years later, David desired to build a permanent home for the Lord. And David's son, Solomon, builds this beautiful, impressive temple to the Lord. But the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, doesn't dwell in houses made by man. The Lord says uh, through Isaiah, his his prophet, he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? There is nothing that we could build for him. No tabernacle, no temple, no church building. Nothing that could contain his glory or his presence. But yet incredibly and astonishingly, the Lord has chosen to dwell in the hearts of believers through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? Believer, the Lord is dwelling in you. You are his temple. And this means that he is with you in every circumstance of life, in each one of those storms and trials of life that you encounter. He goes with you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises you are his temple and you are being joined up brick by brick, mortared together with other believers in this room and across the world and you are being constructed into his holy temple. 
And that's an amazing truth, isn't it? And what's more, Peter says, as living stones who are being built up into God's house, believer, we are also priests of God. And when we crack this open, we discover that this is a beautiful and wonderful truth. In the ancient Near East, a priest was often seen, right, as an intermediary, a go-between between God or the gods and man. If you wanted to talk to one of the gods, you had to go through one of their priests in the way that they said to go. And in the Old Testament, the, the priests ministered in the tabernacle, in the temple, serving as the worship leaders or, or offering the sacrifices on behalf of Israel. And according to the Old Testament law, the priesthood was limited to the tribe of Levi, right? Only those who could claim descendancy from Levi were allowed to be priests. But now, through Jesus Christ, all believers are priests and all have equal access to the Lord and to his throne of grace. And this is what Martin Luther and many of the other reformers referred to as the priesthood of all believers, right? You've probably heard that phrase, the priesthood of all believers. The Roman Catholic Church had come to view their priests, much like the Old Testament um, people viewed the Levites as a separate super holy class of people, uh, one of those super saints. And in the days uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, in those days, if you weren't a, a priest or a monk or a nun, you were less than uh, these super holy orders. Milkmaids and farmers, doctors and lawyers, all those things were well and good, but you still weren't as holy as a priest. A priest could read the Bible. A priest could handle the sacred things of God. But Luther, who was a priest and monk, as he read Scripture, was convinced by Scripture, passages like this in First Peter, that all believers, regardless of their vocations, have access to the Lord and are priests to the Lord. All, all believers can read his word. All believers can minister one to another. And this is why it's so important to continue to get together like this on Sunday mornings, not just corporately too, but, but, but friends, one-on-one, -on -one, encouraging one another, building one another up, speaking the truth of God's word into one another. You are all priests of God, ministering to God and ministering to one another on behalf of the Lord. And that's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? But yet in, in the midst of all these wonderful promises, Peter does give another sad reality. He, he does acknowledge that, that not all people have believed this gospel message. Instead of building their lives on the firm foundation of Jesus and trusting in the gospel message, anchoring their lives to the bedrock of Jesus, some have, as Peter says, stumbled over the living stone. And that's what he's, uh, the point that he's making in some of those Old Testament quotations there, especially verse 8. Peter mentions that Jesus, the living stone, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's all too easy to, to stumble around, isn't it? And I'm not just going to pick on those of you who are getting older in the crowd. <laughs> we all occasionally stumble around, right? Especially if the terrain is uncertain and unfamiliar. And I can't begin to tell you the number of times that I've gone hiking in the wilderness and stumbled along the way, usually because of some small rock or root that I, that I do not see. And sometimes I saw it too and I still stumbled over it, right? Um, when I lived in Arizona, we would hike the, uh, the Flatiron Mountain quite a bit. Um, it was a good climb, rising some 3,000 feet in about 
three quarters of a mile. Uh, it was a good hike. Uh, you always had to be aware of, of things, cactuses and thistles, big rocks, boulders. You always had to be wary of misstepping. But the worst part of was actually near the end on the way back down. As you exited the canyon area, you still had quite a bit of trail to cover, probably around a mile or so, and the trail, as the trail descended down to the parking lot, and the path was rocky. It was full of uh, a whole bunch of loose stones, about fist size, and it was probably one of the most dangerous sections of the trail. It was so dangerous because you were so tired and exhausted from your hike up and, and down that you weren't being as careful as you should. And you hiked the canyon successfully. You thought you had the hardest part behind you, uh, but you're headed downhill, so you've got all this momentum going. And that section of, of trail, again, full of, of loose rocks and loose stones like this, was capable of, of rolling ankles or hyperextending knees very quickly without warning. And if you were not careful, you'd stumble over these stones. And for many, Jesus Christ, the living stone, is a cause of stumbling. As they approach him and, and the glorious message of Christmas and Easter, they stumble at what they hear. They can't quite believe or comprehend that God would send his son, fully divine, to become man and to die for his creation. It just doesn't make sense. They balk at the incarnation, the, the humiliation, the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They think that it's a myth that's been blown out of proportion and become an unbelievable legend. They stumble. And Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And I don't think we should read that last part about destiny as a, as a fatalistic, doomed to destruction, inevitable and irreversible death sentence. Um, that, that eliminates any chance for repentance and faith. I think Peter is talking about the natural consequences for sin. If you disobey and do not believe the word, the, the logos who is Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in him, the consequences for your sin is death. We ought not to look at God and say, look what you made me do. You caused me to stumble. No, when somebody who rejects Jesus and, and chooses not to believe the gospel message of salvation and eternal life in him they are sealing their own fate. The Lord is full of grace. He is continually reaching out to everyone in love, eagerly awaiting the return of his prodigal children. He continues to indiscriminately spread his love to all, even when the seed of that love falls among the road, the rocks, and the weeds. And so if you have a loved one who has rejected Jesus, left the faith, chosen their own path, don't give up on praying for them. Right? Your heavenly Father hasn't given up on them yet, and he won't. He is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, there is one final rock-solid promise that we can build upon. As living stones who are being built up into God's temple, we have been granted certain blessings and benefits, and Peter points them out in these verses. Verses 9 and 10, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
But you, Peter begins, in contrast to those who have stumbled over Jesus and have rejected him, you, my brothers and sisters, have wonderful blessings and benefits in the Lord that he gives you, that he loves to lavish upon you. And first, Peter says that we are a chosen race. In the Old Testament, right, the Lord chose Israel. Out of all the nations of the world, the Lord chose Israel to bring the Messiah to the world. And while they waited the Messiah, the Savior, to arrive, they were supposed to be sharing his ways and his word with the world. But instead of becoming emissaries, they they kept his word to themselves and became remarkably self-centered for the people of God. After all, right, God had chosen them, and they considered themselves better than all the other nations, all the other people groups. And in the mind of an Israelite, in the mind of a Jew, you were either a, a Jew or you were a nothing. You were a Gentile. But all that changed when Christ came. Jesus Christ did not come just as a Savior for the Jews. Christ came as a Savior for all mankind, Jew and Gentile. And in Jesus Christ, those distinctions of Jew and Gentile are gone. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3.28. He says, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In these verses, Paul is not saying that our vocations, our callings in life are non-existent. And this isn't a text that we can use to justify all sorts of liberal ideologies. What Paul is getting at in the whole of Galatians chapter 3 is that all believers, regardless of sex, employment status, nation of origin, and any other point of division that we could artificially create, all believers are an integral part of the body of Christ. And as living stones, again, all believers are an equal part of his temple. In Christ, we are all one. And Peter also says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that in Christ Jesus, we are a royal priesthood. According to the Old Testament, the priests and the kings were to be separate entities. There was a system of checks and balances, if you will. The executive branch of government was, was supposed to be separate from the spiritual branch of, of the priesthood. And for the most part, that distinction was observed very well. King Saul got into deep trouble from Samuel and from the Lord when Saul grew impatient and tried to offer sacrifices before going into battle. But in Christ, all believers are a royal priesthood. We've already talked about the concept of the priesthood of all believers this morning. As as priests, we have access to the Lord. We can minister one to another on behalf of the Lord. We serve him through our various vocations. And we are a royal priesthood in Christ because we are children of the king. We have been adopted into his family with all the rights and the blessings and the benefits that that entails. And in Christ, Peter says, we are also a holy nation. And this isn't a reference to a particular physical nation with physical borders and an active government such as the United States. I don't think this is a call either to set up a a theocratic government. The body of Christ is far bigger than any one nation could ever be. The body of Christ exists throughout time and space. And that's one reason why I get so excited every Sunday morning to confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed or the like we used last week because it joins us with believers from from all across the world and through all ages. We're not just one isolated group of, of people gathering together here. As we gather together in the name of Jesus with this common confession, we are uniting as his universal church, a holy nation. 
And Peter also says that we are a people for his own possession. Believer, you are the Lord's possession because he created you and he has redeemed you. Both of those truths are captured in Isaiah 43 where the Lord says this. He says, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, he says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. We are his possession because he created us and he redeemed us. Jesus purchased us with his own blood. We are his. And then finally, Peter issues a challenge for believers who are being built up as the living stones in Christ Jesus. He says at the end of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Believer, you are to be ambassadors who proclaim Jesus Christ, the message of Christmas, to the world. This morning I asked the the kids to share some of their favorite Christmas gifts, right? I kind of hope they were a little bit more excited to do so, but (laughs) we did hear about a couple of dolls and some pigs and things like that, right? Uh, I was excited to share with you my favorite gift of my brand new socks, right? (laughs) When we have something that we are excited about, we want to share it with others, don't we? And that's why the allure of social media is so appealing, instantly sharing our lives with others. This Christmas season, and yes, it is still Christmas, right? Traditionally, the, the church celebrates Christmas for, for starting at Christmas Day and then 12 days after that, right? Uh, beginning, ending on Epiphany. That's why we sing the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. It's not just a song about silly gifts and birds and partridges, partridges and pear trees. Uh, it's, uh, there's a meaning behind it, too. Uh, but anyway, uh, this Christmas season, don't forget to share the message of Jesus with others. As you talk about the gifts that you received and the gifts that you gave, the time together that you had with family and friends and loved ones, don't forget to talk about the greatest gift, the gift that God gave us. And I encourage you to do that this week. Make it a priority. Share the message of Christmas with one other person. And if that's too much to ask, begin by praying about it. Ask the Lord to lay somebody on your heart that you could share Jesus with. After all, believer, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for Jesus, that he came to be born as a baby, living a perfect sinless life, dying in our place and on our behalf. Lord, and we pray that you would empower us and embolden us and and encourage us to share that message with somebody this week. Lay on our hearts at least one person that we can tell uh, the message of Jesus to, Father. Give us strength as we do that. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.